This is The Guardian. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Welcome to Politics Weekly Extra. I'm Jonathan Friedland. Politics in Washington often comes down to a staring contest. Who will blink first? Well, this week, to the surprise of many observers, it was the Republican leader in the Senate, Mitch McConnell, who backed down. It was a standoff over the debt ceiling. This is essentially the American government's ability to borrow money. Mitch McConnell said he wanted nothing to do with it. He was going to leave the Democrats to twist in the wind. But he backed down, at least until December. So why exactly did the notoriously ruthless McConnell decide to cave on this occasion? For Joe Biden, it meant one major headache out of the way, but there are at least two more in the form of two important bills on which hangs his entire presidency. At least that's the view of many who believe these are make or break. To discuss all this, I spoke with my colleague Joni Grieve, who runs the Guardian US live blog and has been covering this whole saga minute by minute. And I began by asking Joni what exactly raising the debt ceiling means. The Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen informed Congress that the U.S. would be basically unable to pay its bills after October 18th. And in order to prevent that, they had to either lift the debt ceiling, which would mean uh, giving uh, the U.S. economy basically uh, more breathing room for their borrowing power, or they could suspend it, which would basically allow them to sort of kick the can down the road, for lack of a better phrase. Uh, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell has been saying for months at this point that Republicans would not help to either lift or suspend the debt ceiling. They feel that this should be entirely Democrats' responsibility because of Joe Biden's economic policies, which are going to cost trillions of dollars. And so basically McConnell has argued that because you are advancing his economic agenda on your own, then you should have to address the debt ceiling on your own. Of course, that doesn't really address the fact that Lifting the debt ceiling is meant to address spending that mostly occurred prior to Joe Biden's presidency. Right. So this is spending that was racked up by Donald Trump, including that massive $8 trillion tax cut. But Democrats raised the debt ceiling then. They didn't approve of the spending that necessitated lifting that ceiling. They just said, fine, we'll we'll do it. And now the boot is on the other foot. Republicans say, no, this is going to be on you and it's going to have to be you who pay that. And presumably that's all politics. I'm just very conscious there are midterm elections just a bit over a year away. 
I think that one of the main reasons why Republicans are uninterested in helping Democrats here is because they can then use the debt ceiling as material for attack ads when it comes to the midterms. They can say that, you know, that Democrats are engaged in reckless government spending and that they raised the debt ceiling by X number of billions or trillions of dollars. So Republicans have been using the debt ceiling fight to paint Democrats as fiscally irresponsible. And so it's a vital bit of business that needs to happen for for the wheels of government just to keep turning and for the checks to keep coming. Uh, there was this standoff between Republicans and Democrats where Republicans were saying, we're not going to give you any help at all lifting the debt ceiling, even though normally it is a kind of automatic thing. Now, I know that Republicans haven't exactly completely folded, but on Thursday, uh, there has been this big development, uh, an announcement from the Democratic leader in the Senate, Chuck Schumer, that he's come to some kind of arrangement with minority leader Mitch McConnell. Just tell us what the deal is that they've managed to broker. We have reached agreement to extend the debt ceiling through early December, and it's our hope that we can get this done as soon as today. So surprisingly to me, at least, uh, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell has been the one to blink. He and Chuck Schumer have announced a deal to increase the debt ceiling uh, by enough money to basically allow the U.S. economy to pay its bills through early December. So it seems like McConnell has actually reversed himself in that in that sense. And why would he do that? In terms of why, there have been some reports that McConnell has uh, voiced concern that the debt ceiling fight was basically giving uh, Democrats ammunition to alter the Senate filibuster. And for those who don't know, the Senate filibuster is has basically been the primary tool allowing Republicans to block the Democratic agenda because when the filibuster is used, it requires 60 votes to advance most bills. And obviously, Democrats don't have 60 votes in the Senate. So if Democrats were to alter the filibuster to address the debt ceiling, then it could have massive implications for the rest of the Democratic agenda, which I think was something that Mitch McConnell really wanted to avoid. And filibuster, of course, this procedural weapon that gives the minority in the Senate almost power of veto, really. So it's quite interesting. He may be this may be one of these cases where he's made a tactical retreat and that he's prepared to lose this battle because he's still got an eye on the bigger war, which is keeping that huge weapon for the Republicans in terms of minority power. But Democrats obviously cock a hoop about it. I mean, how does what what's the next Uh, stages of this. I mean, you mentioned it will come back in a few weeks. Do you think that what we've just seen is a good guide to what will happen again, say in December, in terms of in the end, McConnell giving way, because he doesn't want to have it on him that the US government ground to a halt and that veterans didn't get their benefit checks and so on. Uh, And so is this a win for the ages for Democrats in terms of the principle of the debt ceiling? Right. Well, what's interesting is that An immediate benefit for Democrats uh, in the fact that this deal has been reached is that they can now temporarily lift the debt ceiling and fully turn their focus to passing the bipartisan infrastructure bill and uh, Joe Biden's uh, reconciliation package. And those are two of the president's highest legislative priorities. So there is an immediate benefit for Democrats in that sense. But incredibly, the row over the debt ceiling is actually just one of three headaches that Joe Biden has at the moment. And let's begin with 
The first one, the one that is being facing the roadblocks in the Senate in the form of two people we've talked about on this podcast before, Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema. Tell us about that. You are exactly correct. There are two major bills that Democrats are trying to uh, get to Joe Biden's desk right now. The bill that Manchin and Cinema have concerns about is the reconciliation package. And currently the price tag for that bill, which would address climate change, make childcare more affordable and uh, expand Medicare, the current cost of that package is $3.5 trillion. Manchin and Cinema have both said they do not feel comfortable supporting a bill of that size, and they want that top line number to come down. Manchin said over the summer that he would ideally support a, a bill that costs in total $1.5 trillion, which obviously would mean taking out many, uh, many of the provisions in the reconciliation package. My top line has been 1.5 because I believe in my heart that what we can do and what the needs we have right now and what we can afford to do without basically changing our whole society to an entitlement mentality. Joe Biden has said he's trying to push that top line number closer to the uh, low two trillion dollar range. But even so, that would still require Democrats to take out about 40 percent of the cost of the current bill, which is going to mean taking out a lot of the policies that they had hoped to include in the package. I mean, right, the, the the bill includes all kinds of things that it's very hard to imagine anyone being against, you know, free community college, child tax credits, universal pre-kindergarten. These are like good things that people like. Do, do, do Manchin and Cinema oppose any of them in principle? Or is it purely a notion about small government and they think $3.5 trillion is just too big for the government to be doing, even if it means spending on good things that they would like? I think their main concern is how much government spending has taken place since the start of the coronavirus pandemic. Joe Manchin has repeatedly said, we have spent several trillion dollars responding to the pandemic, and now is not the right time necessarily to spend another $3.5 trillion to invest in all of these priorities, even though he agrees that they are important priorities. We've already put out $5.4 trillion, and we've tried to help Americans in every way we possibly can. And a lot of the help that we put out there is still there and it's going to run clear until next year, 2022. What's the urgency? What's he the also urgency has pointed to the fact that inflation has been somewhat higher than expected in recent months, and he has expressed concern that this package could further contribute to that issue. All right, so the bill has to come, bill literally, like the financial bill has to come down. Joe Biden wanted it at 3.5 million. There's Joe Manchin saying 1.5. This is a classic haggle in the kind of market there. And they're going to find a figure, you know, lower down. That means they're going to have to find a figure somewhere in the middle. That means cutting some of that planned spending. And I'm just interested, how is the argument shaking out in terms of how they will save this money? Because this is an argument within the Democrats. What are the sort of two different camps about how you save that money or make a $3.5 trillion program shrink down into 2.5 or less. Right. So the main debate right now within the Democratic Party when it comes to the reconciliation package is, should we do fewer things for a longer period of time or should we do more things for a shorter period of time? So to paint a pretty broad generalization, I think I would say that the more moderate members of the Democratic caucus are more in favor of they're in favor of addressing fewer priorities, but having those policies in effect for a longer period of time, while progressives are really saying, no, we should do make still try to do everything that we set out to do and keep our promises to our constituents. But we 
could have a community college for only two years instead of eight years. And what they're concerned about is that if Democrats go with uh, the moderate strategy of only funding a smaller number of things for a longer period of time, then the things that get funded are going to be the moderate's priorities. And things like climate change initiatives, which progressives consider to be, you know, make or break for them, are not going to get any money at all. It's so interesting, this, because it is politics, as always. And both of them, there's a political case, I guess, for both, because we read that, you know, Nancy Pelosi, the House Speaker, earlier on in the week did say that it'd be better to focus on a few things and do them well, because that would, you know, make those popular with the public. And you can see the politics of that. But equally, I think, you know, from from the progressive wing's point of view, it is quite smart to say, OK, let's do spin every plate you know let's get all of these programs running because then even if they lose if the if democrats lose the house in 2022 it almost then dares republicans to shut down what may be some very popular programs like free tuition and free pre-kindergarten care and so on so you can see it's not a slam dunk argument uh, between the two and then you know in the middle is joe biden and there are some signals that he might just go for cutting out some things altogether. And there was a signal, uh, I'm told, in his speech in Michigan, where people noticed he left out the whole question, a whole area, namely paid leave. Right. Yeah. And uh, you raise such an important point that historically, it is really hard to roll back benefits once they have once they go into effect. So you can see the progressives argument that if Democrats try to address more priorities for a shorter period of time, well, then in the future, it'll be too politically risky to roll back those policies. And so they will end up remaining in effect for the foreseeable future. But I think that the question that Biden and uh, other uh, Democratic leaders are struggling with is if those policies are only in effect for a short period of time, really, what legacy is that for him? And I think he wants to make sure that this package has a lasting impact on American society, really. Well, it's quite right. I mean, people were talking right at the start of the Biden presidency of it being a transformative president. He himself, and we discussed it here, was encouraging comparisons with Franklin Roosevelt and Lyndon Johnson. Is that the fear that if 3.5 trillion shrinks down to 2.3 trillion, it suddenly becomes a bit meh and it's just a bit sort of keeping things ticking over rather than this groundbreaking expansion of what Americans can expect from their government? Absolutely. I think that that is a real concern here. And I think it's especially a concern for progressives, because when uh, when you talk to progressive groups, what they say is we promised Americans that if we had control of Congress and the White House, which Democrats now do, we would make the most of it, that we would enact change that would that people would be able to see in their daily lives. And they their concern is that if that doesn't happen with this bill, then what argument are they going to have to when the midterms roll around or when the 2024 presidential election rolls around? How are they going to be able to convince people that it was worthwhile having Democrats in Congress if they have not made any tangible uh, impact on people's daily lives? Well, since we're talking tangibles, let's talk then about the other uh, bill. The, you know, his Biden's program rests on these two bills. One we've, we've just been talking about is that social kind of domestic spending. But there's this other bill and it is tangible. What's in there and what kind of problems is that running into? Right. So the other bill that Democrats are trying to get to Joe Biden's desk is this bipartisan infrastructure bill. It's not a plan that tinkers around the edges. It's a a once-in-a-generation investment 
in America, unlike anything we've seen or done since we built the interstate highway system and the space race decades ago. And that bill includes $550 billion in new federal funds for improving roads and bridges and broadband access. Uh, Arguably, one of the president's favorite uh, provisions of the bill is that it would include a historic investment in Amtrak, which is the train service that used to carry uh, Biden from uh, Wilmington, Delaware, his hometown, to Washington, D.C. when he was in the Senate. And it has some uh, very real bipartisan support. It actually already passed the Senate with uh, 69 votes. Uh, 19 Republican senators supported the bill, which is, I mean, pretty unheard of in this very uh, divisive political time. Is this bill perfect? No. No compromise legislation ever is. But it will make a big difference in modernizing our country's infrastructure. More than that, we will demonstrate that both Republicans and Democrats can come together and do big things that move our country forward. And now all that it all that needs to happen is that it needs to pass the House. And there, Speaker Pelosi is running into issues because basically House progressives are holding up the bill because they say, we like this bill. We want to vote for it. We do not want to vote for it now because we do not want this bill to pass until the reconciliation package advances at the same time. They're worried that if the bipartisan infrastructure bill passes on its own, then they will lose momentum and leverage in the negotiations over the reconciliation package say is that passing the this so-called bipartisan infrastructure bill alone could and potentially will have net negative effects on climate. And while progressives support the infrastructure bill, they do not consider it to be the transformative piece of legislation that the reconciliation package could potentially become. So this is fascinating. So what you've got in effect is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Bernie Sanders on one side of the table and Joe Manchin and Christian Cinema on the other side of the table. And do Cinema and Manchin care so much about the infrastructure bill that they would actually move on the reconciliation bill and allow Joe Biden to spend more money nudging closer to that $3.5 trillion in their determination to get the infrastructure that, that, that is in the other bill? Is, does that trade-off kind of work for them? So the House already has had to delay a vote on the uh, bipartisan infrastructure bill because of uh, House progressives' objections to the timing of it. And I think that the House progressives' objections honestly brought Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema to the negotiating table in a more real way. You know, it feels like once it became clear that that infrastructure vote was going to be likely delayed, then Manchin and Sinema started uh, kind of throwing around numbers for the reconciliation package in a more serious way. So it does seem like the House progressives uh, tactics did actually advance the negotiations over the reconciliation package. And now it's just a matter of when or if uh, they can reach a final agreement on the reconciliation package. And that will determine when the uh, infrastructure bill passes, because it seems certain that the infrastructure bill will pass. It's just a matter of when. Now, all people who follow politics in Washington know the old line from the House Speaker Tip O'Neill of many years back when he would say all politics is local. It's definitely true when it comes to these sorts of negotiations about money. So Joe Manchin's from West Virginia, Kristen Sinema from Arizona. Are there specific bits of infrastructure that they want that could, in effect, you know, buy them off? That was often how politics was done in Washington, how business was done, that suddenly there'd be a bridge that would appear or or a new railway line in a state. Is there something they want that, that, that if Bernie Sanders and AOC give way on the uh, infrastructure bill, they would be prepared to come up 
on how much they spend on the other one. So I'm not sure if there are any specific provisions necessarily that like that uh, could be bargaining chips in those negotiations. But what I would say is that the possibility of that vote on the bipartisan infrastructure bill being indefinitely delayed is a very powerful chip, basically, that uh, House progressives can play their hand with. And in a way, people are not very used to seeing that kind of leverage. It is usually on the right of the party that people hold out and dig their heels in. It's quite unusual to see it on the left. You've got a feel for Joe Biden, though, where he's got obstacles on the right in the Senate, on the left in the House. You know, he is stuck there in the middle. How worried are Democrats about what this looks like to voters in the country where you have Democrats holding the White House and both houses of Congress yet cannot get things done. I mean, what is there? Is are Democrats and is Joe Biden taking a hit in how they're seen and their approval rating in the country? I think that there has been a lot of understandable sort of uh, dismay over how the past few weeks have played out. You know, there have been a lot of questions of why can't they pass this very popular bipartisan bill? Why have they are they just dragging out negotiations over the uh, over the reconciliation package? And as you said, the general sense of why can't they get this done? They control both chambers of Congress and they control the White House. That being said, I think that Democrats are much closer to a deal now than they were a few weeks ago, because now Manchin and Cinema are seem to be engaging in a real in a very real way with the White House and with you know their progressive colleagues about what is a realistic uh, number for the reconciliation package that could that could gain their support. So as as frustrating as it can be to watch, it does seem like there is actual progress being made here. Well, it will be, I mean, a um, huge win, just to look at it positively, if Joe Biden manages to get all three of these things sorted, you know, a big infrastructure bill, uh, a big program of social spending that progressives and, and, and moderates alike get behind, and manages to raise the debt ceiling so the country does not default, people will be talking about this, you know, the great uh, effective man in the White House. But the stakes are very high. Uh, We should not leave you, uh, Joni, without asking you our traditional what else question. And there is a big other topic because this was the week the Facebook whistleblower came to town, uh, Francis Hogan appearing uh, in Congress. Joni, what was the impact of that and uh, on lawmakers? What effect do you think her testimony about the social media company had. My name is Frances Haugen. I used to work at Facebook. I joined Facebook because I think Facebook has the potential to bring out the best in us. But I'm here today because I believe Facebook's products harm children, stoke division, and weaken our democracy. The company's leadership knows how to make Facebook and Instagram safer but won't make the necessary changes because they have put their astronomical profits before people. Yes, so her testimony raised real concerns about how Facebook conducts its business and the amount of control that it has over our communications and uh, commerce, both in the U.S. and around the world. And so you are starting to see some progressives, including uh, Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, raise the matter of potentially breaking up Facebook and suggesting that they have too much of a monopoly in the social media world, especially when you consider that Facebook also owns companies like WhatsApp, which is, you know, which is a huge huge driver of communications globally, and Instagram, where many small businesses now conduct their uh, some of their transactions. And so you're starting to see some pushback, real pushback to Facebook and raise questions of should Facebook be as big as it is? And does the government need to step in here? 
Well, that question, whether this is finally going to be the moment when government or Congress steps in, that has been many times before people have said maybe this is the moment. But who knows? Perhaps now is the time. Uh, thank you so much, as always, Joni Grieve, for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me. And that is all from me for this week. For anyone who wants to hear more about Facebook whistleblowers, do look out for Friday's edition of Today in Focus, as The Guardian's global technology editor, Dan Milmo, explains exactly what happened with that story. And in case you missed Boris Johnson's rather interesting closing speech at the Conservative Party conference this week, do listen back to Wednesday's edition of UK Politics Weekly, as The Guardian's deputy political editor, Rowena Mason, gives us all the highlights from Manchester. But for now, it's goodbye. This week's producers were Yolene Goffin and Danielle Stevens, and I'm Jonathan Friedland. Please look after yourselves, and thanks, as always, for listening. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.